My journey has been one of returning from the darkness and stepping out into the light once more. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logos and Trivial. While you're sitting trying to figure that out, this is my podcast. Allegedly. Logos and Trivial podcast. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logos and Trivial. Maybe you're also Logos and Trivial. While you're trying to figure that out, let me introduce today's esteemed and side of the head shaven guest. It is the man, the myth, the symbol, Garrett Daly. Hello, Garrett. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Yes, sir. Now, Garrett was, I think, maybe my, I don't know, second or third guest on this podcast, something like that, Garrett, yeah? I think three, yeah. yeah. And um, he's also my friend, but he's also a very interesting guy. He's a, he's a very thoughtful dude, has been working on developing the one true philosophy for Ooh, his now. adult life, <laughs> has, uh, has demonstrated a very rare and remarkable ability to uh, understand the complexities of psychology and philosophy and synthesize them into uh, usually moderately length or moderately, moderately, uh, moderate length, length, well, blog posts. He's got a very popular website, Master Self. There's more to it than that, but you know, website names and all, Russians. Uh, but beyond that, he's, uh, he's very, uh, started the Ion Media Company, of which I was once a part and now essentially, uh, is on hiatus while he's working on some other things. Uh, we've done a bunch of podcasts together over the past couple of years, and he's just a very interesting dude, and I'm glad to bring him back on. And so with that uh, very spaced out and non-informative introduction, Garrett, welcome back, and why don't you do a far superior job explaining who you are and what you do to the audience if they are not familiar. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So, um... I guess uh, as of like the Aprilish, I think uh, I've been off of Twitter. Uh, we kind of realized with the uh, the first death of Ion Media that second death actually the first death was when the first team was gone and then we came back. So the second death of Ion Media that the uh, online stuff really wasn't. Uh, there's a lack of stability in the long term that is not ideal for building the kind of community stuff that I'm looking to do. So I redirected all my efforts towards offline stuff since then. And I've, I've been doing a lot of this in the last year anyway, since about mid-June when I moved out here uh, back to Raleigh, North Carolina. But we really were getting a lot of traction with that sort of thing. And then coronavirus hit and the lockdowns and everything. Obviously, uh, if anyone is familiar with the news, we were one of the first people to have uh, large scale protests here, like right down the street. I was literally like a mile from them uh, when I was living downtown. So uh, over the course of quarantine, we ended up working out of a, a buddy of mine's house as a small group and we were, you know, doing like calisthenics on the porch and stuff and, uh, you know, cooking together and all kinds of 
it's very cool. It was a very good bonding experience. But then they mandated like a don't leave your house kind of thing for a few weeks. And uh, I went home. I was I, like, just stayed home alone by myself for like almost a month, which was honestly like cool. It was like kind of like being back in the desert because uh, I, I, I thrive in that environment. Uh, a lot of people don't. But um, eventually we started coming out of the house again. They were just stopped really giving a shit to be honest. And uh, I moved across town. My buddy Sonny bought a house. And now at this point, there are four of us in this house that are all like uh, young professional dudes that work in some kind of uh, digital field, you know, consulting or um, web services, graphic design. You know, uh, John Dufresne, who you may know from Twitter, uh, you know, obviously the uh, rest of the audience probably, probably doesn't know because he didn't tweet as much as he is funny in real life. So he's here. And I guess basically we've just been trying to optimize the house as if it were a, uh, a prototype community experiment. So we have uh, morning and evening workouts. There's uh, schedule for that stuff. We have an office and like a big uh, long table in the office in the kitchen. There's a fucking 3D printer. We have like little rooms set up for conferences and stuff. We have a like full size uh, weighted electric piano and guitars and violin and a bunch of other instruments and shit uh, for in the living room for jamming and stuff. Um, we're setting up the backyard at some point. I want to build a fucking rubber pit so we can do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, but we've been doing we have like a, a bunch of boxing stuff and we've been, been doing like fight training and there's a park across the street. Uh, where there happens to be a giant tractor tire in the field. So we were like running around the wood, like flipping tires and shit. Um, so we're finally, it's all kind of coming together slowly. Um, but yeah, man, uh, there's another, there's another part of that. I don't know if you know, uh, about when I was working at the marketing company, but, uh, there's a whole story with that too, about, um, Canadians committing large scale fraud. That's pretty interesting. So I don't know what part of that you want to jump into. You can go where you want. So it sounds like you're building like a, like you're turning yourselves into super incels. Is that basically, yes, there's never been a woman anywhere within uh, 10,000 feet of this house and it's in the neighborhood. So, Hey man, with a picture like that though, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine how that could be possible. It beats me. Must be the, must be the inordinately small mouth. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's so, that, that's uh, what my dentist said. It's medically significant. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it's <laughs> aesthetically significant too. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm just gonna, I so, gotta walk around. Yeah, you do. Uh, just to get a spreader. <laughs> Reverse kegels for your face. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what? Are the, I guess I'm interested in starting in. Um, Sort of, and I know a little bit of this, but I'm interested in the genesis of um, the sort of intentional community aspect of what you're doing right now and and why certain things are part of it. For example, the the fitness, the the sort of communal business aspect, that kind of thing. like how how did you how did you decide to get this going? How did you find the people to uh, joined together to create this uh, burgeoning community and and where do you envision it going 
as time progresses? Yeah, so this, uh, I had been out in the desert for like three-ish years. I hadn't come home or seen anyone, and I ended up coming back for the first time in April of last year on vacation. And uh, the only person that was in town uh, when I got back uh, was Sonny. And I was like, hey, what's up? You want to get lunch? He was like, yeah. So within five minutes of us meeting up to get lunch, uh, we basically talked about uh, Nova, which is there. We went to, um, there's a place called Morgan Street Food Hall, which is like a giant warehouse that they converted into kind of like a, a strip mall food hall sort of thing. But it's all like industrial and exposed brick and stuff. We are in there. It's like, oh, this would be really cool if you like put roof, uh, rooms up there and you had like a gym over there. We're like, yeah, yeah. I was like, dude, that's what I was thinking about doing. It's like, all right, well, and then we were talking about that for like five minutes. I was like, all right, I'm moving back. We're going to do this. So um, a, a month and a half later, I moved back and uh, basically we started kind of planning it out and it went through a handful of iterations um, for a while. We've done a bunch of different attempts at trying to do it. Originally it was going to be like, Hey, let's, uh, let's build out a uh, deck so we can pitch to investors and we'll get funding. And we're like, well, that's kind of hard because uh, if we have to run it for a straight profit, then it's going to end up like WeWork or one of the other co-working spaces that exist that are all, I don't know. If you look into WeWork, it's a shit show. I think they really fucked it up. Um, we had offices at WeWork at one point too. And it just like, they, uh, the company was like constantly going bankrupt and they would like get a little bit of money and they would go bankrupt again. Cause the guy in charge of it, like, I guess his hippie wife just like spent all the money on crazy shit. Um, so you, you, you wanted to avoid that. And the next idea was like, all right, well, what if we got all the people that would eventually rent space from there? And this would go, uh, the concept is called Nova. Uh, it's uh, essentially Nova is in the middle of the word innovation. So the concept is Nova at the heart of innovation, but it's a, a modern attempt at something that we don't have very much of in the world that we live in, which is how do we bring community back together in a way that is built into the structure of our buildings and the way that we lay out everything, right? I, we believe that that is centered around first, you have your live-ins. So finding a way to uh, create very affordable uh, communal housing for young people. And eventually later models will expand to the average person in the populace, but affordable housing for young people that's communal in such a way that the conversations it generates are gonna create good things. That's the basis of it. You'd also have uh, offices for uh, small businesses so it may be like one flagship local business that would have a bigger office, maybe 10, 20 people, but uh, think like 10, 10 live-ins, 20, uh, 20 people in little offices, a co-working space for individuals or businesses that are small enough they don't need an office, and then a uh, public-facing like coffee shop, food hall, maybe like a little marketplace and kind of recreational area. That would be the basis of Nova. What our goal was like, all right, so we'll get all the people that eventually will rent space from us to sign a letter of intent. But then there's a lot of, it's kind of like running a Kickstarter manually. It's very difficult to, to get letters of intent. And especially when the project itself is so arbitrary, like what building are we going to get? What cities are going to be in? All that kind of stuff. It's kind of hard to get commitment like that. So instead, uh, Sonny was buying a house anyway. So he took a substantial amount of time to find the right one. And we ended up getting this house in North Raleigh, 
where it's it's a very unique neighborhood. Uh, normally, houses have obviously streets. The houses are on the streets, and maybe you have a cul-de-sac. Whereas here, they're all independent parking areas off of the street, and you walk down a brick path, and then there are clusters of houses facing central little like meadows, and they're they're um, it's it's awesome. It's super cool. So already that was that was a good fit. But it has uh, yeah four bedrooms, a giant kitchen. Um, so we run the office out of the kitchen, um, and it just has every all the stuff that we need. So Sonny, I knew from college, uh, we're in the same fraternity. But then uh, we met Artem, who's our second roommate. Uh, he runs a podcast with the CTO of Wikipedia, uh, who he happened to meet before he was the CTO of Wikipedia while Ubering. Uh, he was an Uber driver. In San Francisco, I believe. And then um, obviously John uh, came out here because we harassed him for a month. And and the Canadian border where his girlfriend is is closed, so he's stuck with us. You know, um, and you know this, but I have a very similar direction in the things that I look at. And I too had looked at sort of the digital platform as a means maybe to, to get where I was going. But I realized, um, it's only sort of a, it's only sort of a networking tool in this regard. And so uh, my, my, uh, my sort of trajectory is a little bit different than what you're doing. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of more of the libertarian feudalism model where I'm just, I'm just going to get very, very wealthy and I'm going to build a community exactly how I envision it. And then when that community works perfectly, mm -hmm. I'm going to leverage that and start building them all over the place. And what, and it's, you know, I'll have, it'll be very intentionally designed to take advantage of, uh, sort of natural processes like water harvesting and building a food forest and having an amphitheater and different spaces for entertainment and a central location where there will be shops for trades and, small shops to sell and my hope with the community that i'll be building is that there will be employment enough for everybody who lives there or almost everybody who lives there to work there and never have to drive anywhere they could walk or ride a bike all the food that they will need will be produced locally in the food forest and with the things like silva pasture and these things where you're you're raising livestock in a way that's regenerative to the landscape so it, it, it sort of puts together a lot of the things that i'm interested in which is um, permaculture and culture culture and intentional design and healthy communities and meaningful living um and i know i you know i often joke on twitter or on this podcast that i'm going to be a beneficent lord but i really i really mean that in in sort of a i'm going to build it and i'm going to have a sweet manor house at the top of the hill and you know part of the deal of coming to live there is you're going to own your land you're going to own your home and everything but you're also going to sign a contract saying you're not going to fuck it up pretty much mm -hmm. uh, because i'm not going to let some slacker derail my vision because they bought into my community and then got lazy. Um, but so that's what I like about what you're doing though, is that 
you'll be able to show as time progresses. This was our intent. This is where we started. This is how we iterated. This is where we've gotten to. So now we have a workable model. We have a pretty good idea of some of the obstacles that people will face maybe in similar communities or similar settings or or uh, we'll be able to draw parallels between certain aspects of what we've done to where you want to do it. And I, and I think that as time progresses and you become more successful, that consulting on creating things like that will be a valuable asset in furthering your own deal. And I guess I wonder um, how, how big is the vision for you guys? I mean, you build your own community and then do you, do you take that out and say, this is how we do it and we can help you do it? Or do you step back and say, now we're going to do our own thing and we're going to stay here and we'll just be an example, but we're not going to try to um, overtly promote this? Or, or how do you, what path are you going to walk down or do you envision walking down now? So the, this is, we call this one Nova Zero, obviously. Uh, there's potentially a Nova 0.5 being talked about in the works, but we had plans for uh, four and potentially five actual numbered models of different variations on Nova, and they all serve different purposes. Um, technically, this is closer to what Nova 3 was going to be, but this is the prototype. Nova 1 is a the smallest possible workable city version, meaning it would be like a cafe, co-working space, very small amount of live-ins, very small amount of uh, businesses in it. That's closer to the one that I described. Nova 2 is more of a uh, proper-sized co-working place where you potentially have up to 20 live-ins. Uh, that may be too many. We have to, One of the things that we're going to have to figure out is, okay, how many people is too many to get the core community functional? Every unit of it has to be based around that. That's the thing that all the co-working places failed to do. They all have, uh, yeah, and we work arguably the most successful, successful being pretty vague when they are, you know, <laughs> went, went bankrupt a couple of times or whatever. Um, they didn't have any kind of core community. So even though there are businesses in there all the time, they didn't have that element that makes it like, oh, hey, it's, it's the dudes. We're going to go hang out with them, and see them every day, right? That's what ties it all together. So it's like if you have a coffee shop and you know all the people in the coffee shop, it's a different experience at that point. Or if you're a regular in a bar, it's a different experience, right? Um, so Nova 2 would be substantially bigger. Um, there's a version, uh, a high-end version of Nova 2 that's closer to like a mall, like a shopping mall. That would be one of the things that would, the problems we identified with shopping malls is they're very close to something that we wanted to do in the sense that you got, there's an appeal to walking around the mall. I really enjoy it, even though I don't like going in large groups of people. I like it because I can walk, be around people without interacting with them. And I find that to like, satisfy some kind of need. But imagine if you had that where it wasn't a purely transactional space, where there are places where you could just hang out in public. Because right now, there's not a great deal of them. Every Almost all spaces are transactional in some sense. You're going to go get a coffee shop, buy something, and leave. Coffee shops get closed because you can hang out, but bookstores, you're not supposed to sit in the bookstore and read books, you know? Maybe you're going to go, like, do some work in the corner or something, but they don't. there aren't really public spaces like an old-school Agora or Marketplace where you can hang out. So that's Nova 2 would be larger scale. Nova 3, we moved to the suburbs, so part of the idea would be 
closer to this, figuring out how do we cluster, uh, this would be more aimed at families, uh, you know, people, people getting their first house. So it's kind of a transitional place from the city to the country. Uh, so setting it up for families, maybe neighborhoods that would be centralized around a common area where you'd have like your, uh, washer dryers, your large scale cooking stuff. You might have some small cooking stuff in your house, but a lot of this would be done in the public space because you can then reduce the cost of everyone's stuff substantially have a large, like kind of uh, long haul sort of eating area, have communal fire pit or a communal pool or other stuff like that. So the idea is that you live in your house and you have privacy in your house with your family, but a lot of the stuff you're going to do together because it takes a village to raise a child. Number four is four and five is where it gets interesting because this is uh, four would be very much like Nova village. Um, you have, one of the goals, we're actually talking to some investors right now who have hit us up uh, that know Sunny about potentially trying to do a small scale tiny house village. So four and five, we're going to be based around modular stuff like tiny houses, mobile stuff. Imagine if you had little hubs around the country where you could take your RVs and hook them up and they would set up like little Novas or working on um, basically one of the ultimate goals is how do we do a totally off the grid Nova that's self-sustaining? And that would all be based around like some of the um, permaculture principles, earth ships, making earth ships less ugly. That's one of my life goals. Uh, if you could combine basically, and we've talked about this before, I believe it might even have been on the first episode that we spoke, but um, the combining like Frank Lloyd Wright's Usonian homes, which was an attempt to make uh, attractive, cheap housing that's actually high quality with uh, earth ships, which are uh, almost 100% recycled. And I think a full-size earth ship costs maybe 35 grand to produce uh, with the exception that it's a huge amount of labor. It's very labor intensive in a way that normal houses aren't, but they're almost totally sustainable and off the grid. So if we could figure out how to put all these things together in a way that they're self-sufficient and people don't need to go into town if you live there, Right. So your town would be your little group of people and you could learn how to make your own stuff again. That would be one of the goals. But the real ultimate goal is after we've iterated on each of these, we can extract the core principles of, all right, well, in this house, you have to have a workout schedule because it keeps everyone synchronized or something. And then doing hard things together is a bonding experience. And then we have a community dinner thing. I ran a, a dinner club in town for a year up until COVID hit. And now what we're going to turn that into is, hey, once a week, we're all going to cook a big uh, meal together here. And I think that's even more of a bonding experience than just going and getting food together, which is important. And I, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, we, want to, we just got a fire pit. So one of the things we want to do is maybe uh, at least once a week, sit outside, have a fire, shoot the shit. Um, and so trying to add these little like community structured things that fill some kind of psychological need. So, you know, struggle together, eat together, have fire together. Um, one of the things I learned relatively recently is that the reason that we stay up later than other mammals, the reason we don't go to bed at sundown is because we've had fire for so long that it's an evolutionary need. It's built into your head that you're going to sit around a fire. And we did this for so long and then we just stopped doing it. I mean, like the TV, what, what replaced the fire, the, the radio, the TV, your phone, right? So we still have that need. We're just not filling it. 
And I think it's like, obviously, if it's something that changed our biology, it's critical and we need that. So if we can put that in the rules of like, hey, here's all the things that people absolutely fucking need for their health, we can basically come up with a system that says, aren't people are going to build ugly buildings and architecture, much to my chagrin, regardless of what we do. But if we give them a list of like, just check all these boxes and it will be a human friendly space, even if you suck at your job, then we've succeeded. And if we know what that's like at each scale, like, okay, this is how you do an incubator. This is how you do a public space. This is how you do housing. This is how you do a community center. Then we can basically set it up so that within a hundred years of us figuring all the shit out, we probably won. We probably have succeeded by the end of that. Hmm. So there's a few things in there that um, sort of really hit with me. Um, one of the aspects that perhaps I place more emphasis on right now than you do in, in this sort of a general model is craftsmanship and, and making things um, <clears throat> because anybody who's ever made something with their hands understands the satisfaction that comes with that. And just as you were talking about having um, a community workout structure, a, a community, you know, these, these communal opportunities, one of the things that's really um, been shown in, in a lot of different models, whether it's um, sort of intentional communities or um, the permaculture world or beyond is if you can get together and I'll, I'll just use an example to sort of frame what I'm talking about and then we can maybe dive into it a little bit. Let's say that I have five acres that I'm going to do a total sort of like I have, I have a couple hundred grand to put into turning this into a permaculture paradise, right? So we're going to do earthworks. We're going to do planting. We're going to do structures. We're going to do all these things that are going to allow this five acres to be optimally productive and sustainable. It's going to harvest water. It's going to produce timber. It's going to, I'm going to be able to raise livestock. I'm going to have massive food output. I'm going to have massive material output. I'm going to be able to essentially have everything that I need to live my life off of this in about, you know, 10 years, 20 years, if you're counting timber. Well, one of the ways that I can offset that cost, even if I have it, is to invite somebody like a Paul Wheaton or a Jack Spearco or, um, Seth Holzer's done a couple of these, but his son is also doing them, Josef Holzer. Uh, I invite them and I pay them five grand or something to come and, and put on this clinic. And I bring in the, you know, I bring in the backhoe, I bring in the, and then I run a class and it's like a thousand bucks to attend. And I bring in 50 people and they pay a thousand bucks and they come and learn from a master. They come and see the project actually unfold and they put in their labor. That works. It's been done a whole bunch of times now. But what I would like to see is if I'm, say, building these communities, the people who live there, I want to bring them in as part of the buy-in to the community. Like, look, this is what we're doing. This is how this works. And the same thing with the craftsmanship. The people who come and work out of the shops that I built for them to work in, part of the deal with being there part of the contract with inhabiting that shop is they need to put on classes every so often to teach people how to do stuff. Uh, because one of the things that 
is abundantly clear in the world today is craftsmanship is falling by the wayside. People are a lot more interested in uh, working on a computer than working with their hands. And that has its pluses and its minuses, but what we've seen is that the knowledge and the skill of how to build nice things is sort of falling out of our collective conscience or conscious. And that's a problem because how are we going to, how are we going to create beautiful stone houses? How are we going to create beautiful works of wooden art or metal art or glass art and not just function, but beauty is a functional thing. If you don't have beauty in your life, there's something missing in it. And there's a part of your essence that calls out for those kinds of things. And so by reaching out to the community and saying, come to this class and learn how to do this. Maybe you pay for a little bit of materials or whatever, but you're going to make something. And then there's a certain percentage of the people who are going to come to that. First of all, it's a filtering mechanism because maybe somebody doesn't want to blow glass. Maybe it doesn't want to weld something. Maybe it doesn't want to learn to carve or whatever, but those who come, they're interested. And then a certain percentage of them are going to be like, man, I'd really like to do this. And I think that's a more effective model than sort of like a, an, a, an apprentice model where you have to, you know, you go to school and you pay so much money and then you're not going to make very much money while you're the apprentice for a while. Uh, it's a better filtering mechanism if you're going to put that much time both from the student and teacher aspect. It's a good filter for the teacher. Oh yeah, you get this. And it's a good filter for the student. Like I've actually done some of this, only had to pay 50 bucks for materials. And now I have found that I really want to explore this more. And I, and I like that model for a lot of different things because uh, it sort of, it brings people together like you're talking about. It filters out people who wouldn't necessarily want to continue to engage in that kind of activity. And then the ones who are left are going to be a lot more likely to, um, both have the interest and the dedication to become very skilled and then to continue to pass down and evolve that knowledge as the needs and desires of the community evolve in it. And that that's also helpful from a locational aspect because what if you don't have timber? What if you have stone? Uh, what if you don't have stone? What if you have, you know, resource C and, uh, and then these different communities around, that's where the digital aspect comes in for me. It's like, hey, look what we're doing over here. You guys have some of that. Maybe we could come out there and show you, you know, and then uh, we could work something out in that way. So I guess I'm wondering, and, and I kind of got at this before, but if you're building this node, this central node, or like this, you know, you have these, these different iterations and these different scales, but then how does it, how does that network expand? How does it, do you see yourself as like a spread across the earth force or just, we're just going to do this and then people will either follow suit or not. I guess I'm wondering just like how, how much influence you want to exert on the world at large. I, so I don't one of the things that I've learned and I know you understand this intimately is uh, the future of human structures does not seem to be traditional hierarchical. It's not top down. The likelihood of anyone ever getting top down control of the entire human system again, I, I would even say that nobody has it now, uh, depending on how conspiratorial you want to be. Uh, you can't, you, you might be able to get it, but you can't hold it. It's not natural. It doesn't mirror or, an organic system and the verticality of the hierarchy is such that it makes it very unstable. But what I think is, a stable and realistically 
extant structure is, uh, so I didn't know this was a term, but holacracy is a thing based on holons, which you're very familiar with. Uh, you're the person that told me about them. The, uh, so more in the, I, I don't want to be in charge of anything. People, people are fucking annoying. Uh, management is not fun. It's it, even managing smart people is not fun as you probably remember. Uh, so I, I don't want to do that. Let everyone else figure that out. My, my thought is if you have the core systems and those are shared with the people that can run it themselves, then it works at scale. So rather than Nova, Nova is not going to be the Nova corporation. We own your house. We don't want to do that. We're not going to ever get that far. I don't even know if Nova will ever be a company in that sense. I think it's more of an idea, like an idea system of like, hey, we're going to make this system. If you want to use it, cool. Uh, but also, right currently, there's a handful of people that we've talked to that are definitely interested and bought into the concept of meshing out some kind of network of like a confederated system of these uh, community experience. So. Jamie Combs obviously has his secret uh, secret lair up at Mount Shasta. Um, Kairos, it's almost it'll be launching soon enough. I think within a year. Uh, we talked to him like last week, two weeks ago. Um, Kairos has a giant property out near um, the Alamo somewhere. Or it's in Arizona. I don't know. Somewhere over somewhere in Southwest. Um, and there's a handful of other people that we know that uh, pe casual viewers would not be aware of, but that all have similar ideas going on in different parts of the world. So my thought is rather than try and do it the hard way and just we run everything ourselves and we have to scale, it's like, eh, let's just link up all the people that are already doing stuff and we can make like a little archipelago of experiments. And then if we could link them together in such a way that they could share information, then they're going to iterate so much faster. The key... I think would be that if you had some kind of uh, labor exchange system for visiting locations. So, hey, we happen to have a guy who does stone masonry and you guys need some bricks laid or uh, you happen to have uh, like a cabinetry uh, carpenter, right? A guy who does like high level cabinetry and we need some wood carving done. Okay. Uh, we'll switch them out for a month and they can stay for free, but they're going to work for their meal, right? Stuff like that. Um, I, I, I also am very, very fond of the idea of bringing the trades back. One of my life's goals is, well, one thing I, I decided when I was a painter at 18 was I'm never going to have a house that has paint in it, uh, personally. So if I was going to do that, I'm going to have a house that's made out of natural materials. I want to build houses out of stone or some other kind of like unusual style of house. I've, there's a bunch of different kinds of weird houses like cob houses or adobe, or um, obviously earthships are weird as hell. But something, uh, I figured what I would do at some point is just get, uh, I'm looking for a pair of cold chisels so I can just go out, there's a stone, uh, abandoned stone quarry in town and just start learning how to cut the bricks out. But uh, something like that. And then you could, I know, right? The uh, learning how to to build houses in such a way that we plan for them existing for 500 years instead of like maybe a hundred right now i don't know what the lifespan on a house is but a roof is supposed to last 30 years it's like that's kind of ridiculous when there are buildings from 2000 years ago that still roofs you know like so 
that that sort of thing. I've definitely considered a lot of that, but that's we can't figure it out all by ourselves. Uh, our version obviously is much much more urban and tied to the city. It, we're I mean we're obviously suburban, but compared to what you're doing or what you want to do, they're quite far apart. But this problem doesn't work unless we solve it in all the contexts, right? And while uh, I've definitely moved away from the downtown area, and I think the way that we build downtown areas is terrible, and a lot of the cities have horrible effects on people, the, it's also unlikely that cities go away ever. So we do have to figure out the city part of it as well. And I think the first step to that is really getting cars out of cities, but we'll get there. So there's a man, there's so much to unpack in the direction that this conversation is taking. And, you know, we did talk a little bit just before we started about, um, sort of just, well, you're interesting. Well, we'll figure it out. Uh, and I like the, I like the direction this is headed in because typically, even though this is sort of one of the avenues of thinking that I have spent the most time thinking about and experimenting with people sort of just like glaze out when you talk to them about this because they can't, they don't even have a picture in their head of what this kind of world would look like. And you can explain it to them with principles and you say, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if all the water in your community just didn't get flushed down the drain and disappear? Like, you know, what if when it rained, you had something like this and something like this and Oh, look at that. The water settled right there into the ground. And, and if you planted right here, right where the water settles with some trees and some shrubs that produced food, man, you could, and you would never have to water them. That'd be cool. Right. And what about all the gray water? Couldn't you just water everything with the gray water from the city? And what about the, what about the sewage? There's a lot of gas that off gases from that. Um, couldn't you capture that gas and use it to cook with or fuel your vehicles? If you're going to have vehicles, that's weird. And then couldn't you compost that and then use it to fertilize the rest of the land? Yeah, you could. And there's examples of these things everywhere. And it's like, okay, uh, well, what about all these things we build homes with that are poisonous? Why do we do that? Couldn't we not do that? Didn't they always not do that until like 200 years ago? Why? They're trying as best as they can. Well, it's, it's true. It's true to a certain extent. You know, people, I, I'm very fortunate that I, number one, I come from farmers. And number two, I just had the good fortune to stumble across some of these ideas because there was a certain part of me that rebelled against a lot of the aspects of modernity and I went looking for it. And fortunately I found it, but you know, Hey, I, as I've gotten older, I've come to a place I'm grateful to be in, which is I'm, I'm a lot more understanding of uh, sort of other people's limitations, whether it's cognitive, whether it's time, whether it's just, uh, you know, people are living lives, they're doing the best they can, they have families, they have jobs, and, and how much of your time do you really want to spend thinking about how to revolutionize the world? For some people, that's just not in the cards, for whatever reason, maybe they just, you know, it's good enough, or they don't even have a concept of what might be better, and if you could live 60 years with your family in a decent house with a decent job and look back and say, hey, you know, I'm glad I had my family. I'm glad I had this place. Well, fine. Uh, but, you know, I am blessed and cursed, I, I suppose, both with um, just this constant flood of 
literally visions of, of what could be. And then I, and what that causes in me is a choice. Okay. I've seen these things. It's clearly better. These things I've seen. What am I going to do about that? Am I just mm-hmm. going to, am I just going to let those flow out of me and go, huh? or am I going to own these things I've seen and do my best to make them? And for me, um, responsibility is an important aspect of my whole foundation of who I am. And part of the reason people who have listened to this podcast really at all, or any of my guest appearances on other podcasts is, you know, I didn't always accept that responsibility. I didn't always accept, um, that the reason I have these visions is because I have been given a purpose to help see them through. But now I do. And whether or not that's a reality, it's the belief that I accept and it shapes my reality and it shapes my steps and it shapes my thinking. And so, um, you know, I guess rather than hash out my own progress towards accepting the responsibility for these things, I guess I wonder, um, what is the genesis for you of moving from a place where the average person might be, which is, yeah, things could be better, but you know, I got my job, I got my family, I, you know, I got my limited time. I, I like this show. I like this book. That's good enough for me to, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to create an intentional community. I'm going to team up with people and I'm going to try to build something new and better and demonstrate to the world that it can be done and then connect with other people who, you know, where along the line and what were the things that led up to you accepting responsibility within yourself to create something like this? Yeah, I should clarify that was an asbestos joke. That was not me uh, actually saying they're trying as best as I can. Uh, but the... Uh, totally missed so, it. It's not like me. That's actually never happened, yeah. So basically... Um, a lot of this stuff is stuff that I documented in my blog, but the long story short version of how I ended up here is um, I was in high school. There was a certain way I wanted to live my life, but it was very unrealistic and not, not founded in reality. Uh, so when that worldview was shattered, uh, then I had a lot of like, I really don't know what's going on anymore sort of stuff. And then a combination of like uh, having a bunch of terrible jobs, psychedelics and other fun things. Uh, led me to self-reflect quite a bit. And in the process, I realized, okay, well, I don't know what to do, but whatever I'm doing right now is not working. So I basically tried, um, I was very, very introverted and antisocial when I was younger. So I tried to become very out, outgoing and people focused. And I realized basically like, all right, my dad's kind of a badass. Uh, if I'm ever going to beat him, I can't beat him in his own game because he did that, right? So I have to do something else. And that was the one thing that he I uh, never really seemed to do very well with the people stuff because he's he, very similar to me in that regard. So I figured I was going to do all the people shit. Um, so I was trying to be very outgoing and people and stuff when I went to college. The only reason I went to college was to get out of my hometown because it's a shithole. And the, there's nothing to do there except like party and, you know, go to bars and have all your friends get in fights all the time. So I went to college. I was there for a year and a half. I did not go, obviously, because I wanted the educational aspect. I thought it was bullshit when I got there. I really did not care for it, but I made a lot of good friends, and that was worth it. Uh, But basically, in the course of being in college, I was like trying to drink myself to death because it was like dealing with the problem of nihilism at scale. And um, eventually, 
didn't didn't succeed in that endeavor and then realize okay then either the universe wants you to be alive the universe doesn't give a shit or maybe there's some other answer that that isn't obvious but you got work to do uh so from there uh right uh started a business with a buddy of mine did that for a year um realized that a year, after a year of doing a valet trash business i was not passionate about valet trash uh <laughs> So we went west, uh, went to Colorado. I worked in a microchip factory. And after a couple months there, my the guy who's training me to run a microchip furnace, which is a thing, uh, was like, why don't you go to Tesla? So I went to, te uh, went to Tesla, got the job, came back. I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to move out there, I can't afford a place. So I lived in a tent for a month. And that's I succeeded in finally um, one of my lifelong goals, which was become fully self-sufficient uh, in a way that you don't have to rely on anyone. So living in tent in the desert was a way to do that. And then finally that I had you know, achieved some measure of independence that I needed, uh, started like getting all my shit together. The website came out of that period of my life, all my, my writings. Um, and then I just started try, like uh, formulating, all right, well, how do we actually start solving these problems? What do, what do I actually want to do with all of this stuff? And ultimately, Ultimately, I'd like to see a world where the kind of stuff that I had to do isn't, it's, it's not realistic for every single person in the world to live the way I live. And actually, if more than 10 people uh, in any given group of people did what I did, that group probably would not function. Uh, like, you can't, it's not, uh, my motivation and the, the way that I'm motivated, uh, I've realized is very much like, it's good for me. It would be horrible at scale. So I had uh, recently had the realization, like in, since uh, since lockdown and stuff, had the realization like I need to train myself to be externally motivated now because I got the internal motivation shit down. I can do all that, but I can't teach people that because it requires you to have this weird backstory and a bunch of like <laughs> life experiences that I wouldn't recommend most people have. So how would we get around that? we have to have a social motivation system, right? And that's what all of this, for me, in some regard, is how do I externalize this stuff into systems? How do we, uh, how do we motivate people with positive feedback instead of negative feedback? Because I'm very much motivated by negative feedback. I want to go like, oh, I feel terrible. I'm going to go run 10 miles. You know, I want to go like, I'm going to go suffer today. And that's, that's very motivational to me. I know you have some element of that too. Um, but that doesn't really work. You can't teach that. It, it's some, if people don't have it, it's not, they're not going to have it, right? So that doesn't solve the problem at scale. We need to motivate positively. And um, so I guess mainly the thing that I realized, because I spent a large portion of that, what I, like up leading up to when I was in college, trying to be uh, a normal person and fit in and be something I'm not and give a shit about a lot of things like having a real job. And I, I just can't be, can't be asked. I can't do it. Uh, so it's not even like, it's literally not a choice for me. I do not, I cannot choose that because I know for me where that road leads. If I try to do all this stuff that I know is not what I'm supposed to be doing, it leads to me being miserable, right? I cannot do it. I, can, I can't do it and sustain it. It's not a functional way to live. So I don't really have much of a choice. I guess that I made, I made that choice so many times over 
in my heart that now there's not a choice to be made. I'm just doing what I'm doing. And it's inevitable that this is that I burned all of the ships and roads behind me. There's no way to retreat at this point. And I'm cool with that. And I think that, man, it's like when the first time we had this conversation, there's no way, which was like two years ago, I think, uh, there's no way I would have believed that we would be this far already. You know, I didn't think we'd be making any progress on this until I was like fucking 40. So the the fact that it's even even like tangible whatsoever is just, it's a miracle, you know? And especially seeing uh, all the time that I spent running different online communities and trying to like build all that stuff, it's that's like playing with your hands tied behind your back, you know? It's like, it's it's so much easier to just do cool shit in public and find the right people and they just come in and it's like effortless. It's uh, one of the one of the things that we've been talking about um, that basically for, for our actual business work rather than Nova stuff is wouldn't it be cool if instead of trying to do advertising and like shouting at people and like saying, hey, look at me, you could just be so good at what you're doing that people are naturally drawn to it. And so we're calling that like the gravity model of, uh, of marketing, but that applies to everything. You know, you, if you look at Tesla, Tesla just became the biggest automaker in the world and they don't even have a marketing department. They don't spend any money on ads. Right. So doesn't that, doesn't that suggest some, some fundamental truth that people do not want to acknowledge that like, Wait, maybe all that shit is the wrong way to do everything. What if everything we're doing in the modern world is wrong? And I think you and I have an intuitive knowledge of that because you can just feel the the wrongness of the way that the world works. I think a lot of people just do what they're told and they accept the path that's laid out for them and they don't look like, hey, what's behind that bush over there? You know? So it's interesting. Reminds me of the old Bill Hicks joke. And for everybody out there who's in marketing, kill yourself. No joke. That's it. Kill yourself. Oh, look at Bill. He's going for that anti-marketing dollar. No, fuck you. Kill yourself. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, I found out. I found out yesterday via Victor that um, Netflix is owned by Bernays' nephew, which was about the last straw for me to like lose all faith in any large-scale company. Because uh, he's the worst. He, he genuinely is the worst. If anyone's watching this and you don't know who Edmund Bernays is or Edward Bernays or whatever, look him up. He's the devil, the actual devil. It's like he's the person that Hillary, Hillary Clinton aspires to be on her best days. I would, I would really recommend going to read his books. They're interesting. No, you're right. Um, yeah, it's, it's very important uh, to understand him, I guess. Uh, there's also a documentary called The Century of the Self that talks about him and his influence on... Um, media and propaganda and politics and everything. And it's quite good. It's very depressing. Uh, but truly the modern world, if, if you took the worst, the worst part of all of it has got to be, he's got to be top five, like genuinely people that have created horrible things that have set the standard for everyone to be far worse than they would be by default. Like, but I guess he was just first. So I don't know. Is that, Regardless, uh, I, I, I've always hated advertising and marketing. Uh, I, of course, have found myself in advertising and marketing, but I took a vow 
years ago after um, I learned how to sell hair straighteners in a mall kiosk that if I got into college, I would never sell anything again. And much to the chagrin of Ion Media's hopes of becoming a profitable company, uh, I had to find different ways of making money. Uh, and so ultimately, this is, seems to be culminating in uh, a model of advertising and marketing that involves neither advertising nor marketing uh, and a model of doing sales that doesn't involve doing sales. So we're developing a concept called the partnership economy, which is basically the model. Uh, I just, we were talking about this yesterday with John, but uh, everybody who's watching this podcast probably is familiar with like the red pill and the pickup artist guys. And they're like, we're going to learn all these tactics to like get women to touch our wieners. Right. And so you have a, uh, you have this whole set of rules and stuff that if you follow these rules and you do these things and people are going to want to like do your thing. And that's basically what advertising marketing is. It's so sleazy. It's so creepy. It's like, I'm going to tell you the things that you want to hear. So you do what I want you to do. It's like, okay, what's the opposite of that? Well, maybe, maybe you just like get your shit together and then be cool, be a normal person. And like, talk to people with your words and then people who are also cool will hang out with you right and that's the that's basically tesla proved that that's the case that doing it that way works right uh a, a person with any sort of common sense can prove that that's the case in regards to human relationships right but we're so ingrained in this idea of like like we we literally enshrine cultural self-loathing to the point where it's like everybody's stupid i don't like myself so I'm, I'm going to tell the stupid people uh, things that they need to hear so they'll like me, right? And that operates on so many different levels. It's insane. Politics, marketing, relationships, everything is built like that. There's a couple of things um, I want to bounce off there. Number one is, uh, you know, the pickup artists. All the guys who can actually pick up girls will tell you no game is game. Like if you're a dork, then maybe you need some rules to, to get you to a place where then it just becomes fundamental to who you are. You go, you're like, oh, I'm interested in you. Well, I'm going to express that interest and I'm going to do it in a way that's not creepy or dorky. Uh, and I'm going to be in shape and I'm going to look nice and I'm going to work hard at my job so I can have a good job. And then lo and behold, you're probably going to be interested in me unless you're not. And then I move on to the next one and I don't get my heart set on this one girl I've been making eyes at. How weird is that? And it, it reminds me of a conversation um, I once had with William Mullen. And I was just kind of laughing at the, the red pill guys and the sort of, uh, you know, hierarchical way they look at these things. And he's like, have you always been able to get girls? I was like, yeah, pretty much. He's like, well, there you go. People who haven't, they don't, it's not instinctual to them. And so I think that one of the things that um, is useful sort of in that, uh, like go by the numbers or paint by the numbers framework is it can help you to develop skills that don't come naturally to you. And then if you go through the sort of rote long enough, then it becomes natural. Um, one of the other things, oh, by the way, uh, when you're talking about sort of realizing that your fight against broad scale nihilism was n not feasible, I just couldn't help but think of Jordan Castle. Shout out to Jordan. 
get your shit together. I, yeah, we just talked to him last week, actually. He's looking good, man. He's, he seems like he's doing well, hanging out with James. Yeah, Jordan's a good dude. Shout out to James, too. What up, James? Big, big goof. Jordan Peterson. <laughs> That's how I was telling him. I was telling him, it was like, James Prowling Dowling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he was not fond of that nickname. That's the best. No. Still I love when these podcast name nicknames are uh, offensive to the people I give them to. <laughs> <That's the best. laughs> um, but I guess, I guess what I was thinking about as you were talking, um, I couldn't help but just sort of um, be thinking the whole time about my sort of whole court gesture persona when it comes to the to the marketing and the, and the sleazy tactics and the, and the, the game of power that is played and the way it's played. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of research and reading and thinking and writing about influence and narrative and power. And I, I just can't help but laugh about it. And I, you know, I have this thread on Twitter where I point out these rules of manipulation and narrative and power. And then I always flip it and it's like, you know, you turn, you turn, you turn the king's own game on the king. Um, and that's sort of one of the things that I think that's a very useful filter is like, hey, hey, here's a thing people are doing. It's kind of sleazy. And what if we did the sleazy thing to them? And it's just, it's, a, it's like a filter. I've had people contact me because I use the word Lord in those tweets. And they're like, leave Jesus out of this. <clears throat> or DM me like, what do you what do you mean, Lord? Are you talking about God? No, do you you know you know what a court gesture is? I'm not talking about God, but you know that there's there's certain folks who just are on a level where that doesn't resonate with them. But then there's other people who are like, dude, this gets the point across in one tweet that it took five pages in this other book. It's like, yeah, man, you know. And I guess what that all comes down to is, I guess there's this process of uh, sort of having a sense of humor, one, and being able to synthesize complex ideas or processes into easily digestible chunks. And what you're talking about, <clears throat> putting this framework together, iterating all these ideas, building these communities, it can seem very daunting and complex. Um, and for the the casual person, the casual listener, the just the guy who's like, yeah, man, I'm just trying to live my life and have some people influence me towards the positive. Maybe this broad scale systems thinking is is not what they're interested in, and maybe they think your idea is cool, but they're like, well, cool, man, come talk to me when it's working so I can see it. Um, and I guess I'm curious, what is it? If you could, uh, if you could sort of distill or synthesize what you're talking about and what you're trying to build into something a little more digestible for um, just the casual person out there who finds it interesting but doesn't necessarily have a frame of reference or doesn't uh, doesn't have this sort of visionary drive that uh, you or I or a lot of the people who've come on this podcast have. Um, what would you say if you were really trying to get across what you're doing and what they might do in their own lives to try to maybe instill some of the value or the wisdom in, in what you've been talking about and what you're trying to do in a more simple or, or digestible form? 
So all of that other stuff, every other thing, my whole life story, all that is very, very, very tangential to something that I have been slowly, re I think I've been realizing this for at least a year and a half, but really started figuring this out recently, which is basically all the thinking and complex system stuff and all the other things in the world do not fix the problem, right? Their, their problem is caused by a lot of people over time consecutively lacking those things, but it's also about lacking something else. And what that, the fundamental problem of uh, mo the modern world is that we have created a world in which we have eliminated uh, the capacity to deeply feel things at all. And what we think of as like psychopaths or these uh, evil people, all kinds of stuff is all the consecutive product of people that have lost their ability to touch the other part of themselves, the part of you that feels. And so when we make decisions without regard for the part of you that feels, your ability to uh, empathize with other people or your ability to uh, care about things beyond just you, then we build systems that get progressively more destroyed. And so even if you had all the systems thoughts in mind, you can build an emotionless uh, success machine and you get Facebook, right? It's like, oh, hey, we're going to connect all the people in the world. That sounds really cool in theory. And then you look at it and it's like, what the fuck is this? It's terrible, right? <laughs> it's, just not, it's not a good medium. And it makes people worse for being on it because it doesn't have any regard for the human in mind. And so much of the human is in person and uh, all of these natural things that we evolved with, you have fire and food and, and friends, you know? So to the listener, if you're gonna take away one thing, figure out whatever the thing is in you. And this is probably easier for the average person than it is for the, the people like us. Uh, there's a there's a book that I read, Love and Will by Rollo May, where he talks about like high levels of willpower are only necessary for geniuses and insane people. The average person can deal with having a small amount of it. <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, I didn't understand that at first, but then I uh, effectively just realized like uh, if you're going to do things that are super contra to the grain of society, the amount of effort and thought required to go into it is far above what it's required to go with the grain of society. But the uh, if you're going to do anything, figure out how to move in the direction of the part of you that is that hides from vulnerability or uh, opening up or any of that. Because basically, once you accept that it's a necessary part of life to feel things and to expose yourself to pain and to be open to uh, expressing yourself with other people, all of that then you don't have a choice but to do that. And the thing that's on the other side of that, you know, on the other side of either heartbreak or loss or grief or loneliness, that is the thing that you're supposed to be doing. And you have to just open, open yourself up and just say, all right, come get me, bitches, because fundamentally you can take it. And if you accept that and you accept that being hurt is a prerequisite to succeeding, then you're going to succeed and you're going to be able to deal with it when you are. Right. And I think that that concept has been so transformative in my thought, uh, because 
I don't know. I realized, so I think it was like December of 2018 that they're literally, that you can think as long as you want about everything in the world, but there's a box that thinking lives in and it cannot leave that box. And all the things that are outside of that box cannot be touched by thinking, right? So you can think about, you can think about, oh man, uh, ethics and stuff, or you can think about unethical stuff. You can think about how do I think about people in a different way to get people's, people's opinions to change or to get them to do what they want. But if you're not feeling people and you're not feeling the part of yourself that relates to people, then you're never going to do anything significant with people. And it becomes very mechanistic and full of rules. And to your point about uh, our, our mutual friend, Mr. Mullen, uh, that it, it seems to be in my experience, because and this is from me relating to it, is uh, you have you have this experience of going and getting your heart broken, and then you put up a big wall and you say, "Okay, I'm only going to deal with people with rules. I have all these rules, so I don't feel anything anymore." Because, uh oh, that would be bad if I did. Uh, so no, those feelings they're not real. I'm not going to acknowledge them. I'm just going to deal with you with this system of rules, and then you're not dealing with people. You're dealing with an idea. Because mm. thinking doesn't touch anything else, right? Thinking lives in its own little world. And that's, I think that's, um, I think, I forget who said it, but I think that's Paradise Lost is about that, right? Lucifer is the favorite angel. He's, he's thought, he's the, the, the whatever, he's the, the thinker, he's like Promethean in that sense. And he goes and lives in his own little world where he can be in charge, right? And that's the, that's the punishment. It's like, well, as long as you want to be in charge of your own little world where you're the king, and you can be miserable, but you're at least the king of your little miserable hut, then that's thinking. It's hell. It's just being trapped in the realm of thinking with no feeling, especially if you consider God as love and love is outside of thinking. Love and thinking don't really touch. You can, you can kind of think about love, but you can't feel love with thought. Then the only way that those are going to meet is if you stop thinking so much and, and let yourself feel stuff. I have, I think, just a final thought and response, and then maybe I'll kick it over to you and we can wrap this up. And my final thought is this, that part of a person that you were talking about, that they need to embrace in themselves, the reality that pain and loss and suffering are sort of the foundation upon which you build something better because you recognize that you don't want to feel that way. And so instead of running from it, you run into it and you figure out how to overcome the thing that hurts you or to neutralize it or to embrace it. Sort of the love thing. The thing I want to add to that is that you need to also, in order to be fully human, recognize and embrace that reality in other people. Because if you don't, you're going to have people like my friend Roman McClay who has intensely felt every slight, every pain, every disregard, every wrong, and felt him and felt him again and felt him again until he could no longer stand to be in the world that we've built. And he removed himself and he wrote a book expressing all this pain and the fire that it's built within him. And I would caution the listener and the world that if we don't 
embrace our hearts and embrace the hearts of the people around us, the army of Jacks is coming. It's for real. If, if we refuse to be human, we're going to lose touch with the part of ourselves that loves ourselves and loves each other, and that only breeds death. And my friend Roman, I feel it. I feel it because I care about him and I understand what he's going through. And, you know, right now he's removed himself from the rest of humanity. And it makes me sad because he's a special dude. And imagine a guy like that if the world had loved him back. And so I just want to remind you to remember your heart and to share it. Because if you don't, you're going to break the world worse than it is now. And if you do, you'll heal it. I didn't mean to, to go here, but I guess I'm doing exactly what I'm saying. I'm sharing my heart with you. It's something that's on my mind. And I don't want to lose any more friends. So I guess while I recover from my uh, emotional tsunami there, maybe you could uh, offer up some final thoughts, Garrett. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, a lot of uh, what I just talked about came from that. It came from reading his book and, and talking to him. So the the it's basically like for the viewer, um, it's our desire to not understand someone else that is the thing that shuts us off from feeling, right? Because if we can say, hey, that person's a bad person, or that person is wrong, or that person has something wrong with them, or they're different, or they're other than us, then we tell ourselves it's okay. I don't have to feel what they're feeling. Their feelings don't matter, right? And ultimately, that's what causes all the problems in the world. You could say, oh, hey, well, that homeless guy probably deserved it, right? Oh, hey, that guy who I just laid off at his work, he's probably a loser. He's not good at his job, right? Whatever. We choose, we arbitrarily create these constructions of like whose feelings matter and whose feelings don't. And the problem with that is like, man, if you've, it's, there's a state of mind that you can reach, uh, probably through meditation, but certainly by other means, uh, at random, that's this like visceral experience of love and of compassion. And when you can feel all of the pain in the world like that, it's like unbearable. It's, and that's the reason we shut ourselves off from it because the world is so miserable that to feel it at all, it threatens to like destroy you. And if you ever watch like, um, this is kind of a lame reference in context, but American Beauty, when Ricky Fitz is talking about watching the plastic bag and win, that's what he's talking about. That's what that, was, that scene is written about. And it's like, if you don't want to understand that, it's a comical, ridiculous scene. He's talking about a plastic bag blowing in the wind. But if you understand what he's talking about, that's literally this, uh, in, in Hinduism, it's called metta or loving kindness or maitre, which is where you get maitreya. But 
the um, this visceral it's a visceral experience it's not a thing that you can think about if you think like yeah i might have felt that before that sounds like a thing that i thought about you're not getting it you can't get it it's it's a visceral experience of empathy right and there's um i guess i'll, I'll close with a story that i love quite a bit um when after the buddha had become enlightened uh there were reports of this uh murderer running around and he basically when he was a, a boy he was a very good student and he was a monk under a famous guru uh he was the best student of all but all the other students didn't like him very much and nobody really liked him very much he was so good so he basically was tricked by the students into being cast out by the master and so uh Long story short, he ends up uh, being tasked with taking, uh, killing 1,000 uh, 1, men and taking their fingers. So when he returned to his master, he could prove that he had lost all desire or something like that. Uh, so he ends up wearing them all on a necklace. Uh, his name is Ang Angulilama or Angulimala, which means necklace of fingers. And so at this point, uh, the Buddha hears he has 999. And the final person on his path is his mother. If he kills his mother, then he'll be uh, ruined forever. He'll ne he'll have no chance of uh, of uh, repentance, right? So the Buddha goes and meets up with him, and he says, "Well, you better kill me before you kill her." And so the guy basically is running after him, but no matter how fast he can run, he can't reach him. And so when he realizes this, the Buddha's like, "Hey, it's cool. You want to be a good person again?" And in that instant, he's enlightened and he becomes one of the greatest of all of his uh, disciples. And so when he, uh, the Buddha brings him back into town, all the people are freaked out and they spit at him, they curse him, they throw uh, like shit at him and all kinds of stuff. And he's, the Buddha's like, whoa, hey, what are you doing? Have you ever met that guy? They're like, yeah, yeah, he's the murderer. He's been killing all these people. Like, no, this is a different guy. He's, he's different now. He's enlightened. He's accepted that part of him that feels again. And as soon as you, that's uh, the, the problem is that he started out as this compassionate figure, but the world beat him and made him the miserable thing that the world wanted him to be. And they demonize him and such that, that that's the case. But in reality, it's the shutting off from feeling that and feeling the, the pain of the world that made him uh, like this. And so when you understand that whatever the thing is that the act of compassion that allows you to to feel again, that's the thing that makes you a new person. And it, because you were the same person you always were, which is fundamentally at our hearts, we are that good person. But until we're willing to feel that, we can be awful. We can be really terrible. And so the takeaway for the viewer is everyone has that within them. And even even the, the least, the, the person you think the least of, even the person you like the least, and whatever you have, to do to connect with that in yourself and in someone else that's the thing that fixes the world right because everything else demonizes what do you do when you demonize you make demons right so don't make any more demons i guess that's my takeaway be have some compassion word is born well look man um i i uh, i like this conversation it touched on a a lot of things that I'm interested in, a lot of people who listen or watch this podcast are interested in. 
And I want to thank you for taking the time to come on and to, uh, you know, just spend some time with your old pal Chance. And uh, I appreciate you giving me the space to show a little heart, too, because uh, like we both talked about, it's important. It's very important. You can look out in the world and you can see demons, or you can look out in the world and you can see something more than that. And to the extent that you influence reality, you you will you will create those things in your life and so uh i hope you'll i hope you audience will take that to heart and with that if you're good i'm good garrett yeah thank case, you guys yes sir this has been the logo centrifugal podcast i've been chance lunsford he's been garrett daly this has all been allegedly and we're out <laughs>